Good evening. Happy Hanukkah. Welcome to everyone. I'm so grateful and overjoyed uh, to be able to celebrate the beginning of Hanukkah together with you, studying together about this week's Parsha and about uh, Hanukkah. And hopefully we'll do the same next week. Half of it will be about Hanukkah and half will be about the Parsha, approximately. Uh, but it is a great pleasure for me to be able to be with you, and I'm grateful to you for joining us. I look forward to tonight's Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 10th, 2020. And this week's Parsha is the Parsha Vayeshev. In our Parsha, there are two fascinating women who act in shocking ways with very different results. And their narratives are contiguous in our Parsha. The first woman is Tamar. The second woman is the wife of Potiphar. We learn in our Parsha that Yehuda, Yaakov's son, Yehuda marries and has a son, and his son marries a woman named Tamar. Tamar's husband dies, and then Tamar marries his brother, Yehuda's second son. The second husband dies, and now Tamar is twice a widow. Yehuda says to her, I don't have any more sons of age. I have a young son. If you're going to wait for a few years until he grows up, you can marry him. But presumably, Yehuda was not so keen on Tamar marrying his third son, given the track record of the first two sons. But Tamar has it in her mind that she wants to be part of Yehuda's family. Time passes and Yehuda's wife passes away. So Yehuda is a widower. And Tamar comes up with a scheme. And the scheme is that she seduces Yehuda. And she has relations with him. And she becomes pregnant. Yehuda did not know that the woman that he had relations with was in fact his former daughter-in-law, but now not related to him, Tamar. When he finds out, he thinks that she has been promiscuous and he intends to punish her. Tamar says nothing in her defense. She simply says, if the person wants to reveal themselves, they will do so. Finally, Yehuda realizes he is the one and eventually they marry. Tamar gives birth to twins. One of her sons becomes the father of the kings of Israel, David Amela, King David. The Mashiach, the Messiah, will come from Tamar. That's one woman. The next woman is the wife of Potiphar. Yosef was sold by his brothers and eventually was sold as a slave in Egypt. He became a servant for an aristocrat named Potiphar. 
And Yosef was the head of his household. He was in charge of the household. Eventually, Potiphar's wife was tempted to have relations with Yosef. And she tried to seduce him. But Yosef resisted. It wasn't right. Especially because it was his master's wife. And it wasn't the right thing to begin with. And he desisted. He refused. She was spurned. And she was very angry. And she accused Yosef falsely of trying to rape her. Of course it was not true, but her husband and the others believed her over the servant. And Yosef was put into prison. Surprisingly, our sages tell us that both of these women were prophetesses. They both saw that they were destined to be a matriarch within the Jewish people. And so each of them tried to become part of the Jewish people in different ways. Both of these women had righteous goals. They wanted to be part of the destiny of the Jewish people. Both of them utilized questionable means to achieve their goals. Why were their outcomes so different? Tamar gives birth to twins. Her offspring becomes David HaMelech. The Davidic line of Jewish kings comes from Tamar. She has a place of royalty within Jewish history, within Jewish culture. The wife of Potiphar caused Yosef to be thrown into prison. Our sages tell us, interestingly, that her vision was fulfilled through her daughter, who later was married to Yosef in Egypt. But she was shamed by what she did. And for all time, she is known to us as an immoral, spiteful woman with the similarities in what they tried to do. Why is there such a difference in the outcome? Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz suggests a crucial answer, an answer that is relevant to every single one of us in our lives. The test of character. The truest test of a person's character is failure. Success is nice. We all like success. But failure is much more interesting and it's much more enlightening. There's more to be learned from failure than there is from success. Many people start out with a noble mission. But when they fail, what happens? Some say, well, that didn't work. I'll try another approach. Perhaps I will pray to God. 
Maybe God has another route to success, or maybe God has another mission I should pursue. Others, faced with failure, may become bitter and try to achieve their goals by any means, regardless of how immoral those means are and regardless of what they do that causes hurt to others. Tamar failed in becoming part of the Jewish people when her husband died. She tried again. She tried again. And she appeared to fail each time. The only way that she would be able to succeed once she became pregnant under these questionable circumstances, the only way she would be able to succeed would be to cause Yehuda to be publicly embarrassed and humiliated. She refused to do that. She was willing to give up her life and the lives of the twins she was carrying rather than embarrass Yehuda. In failure, Tamar retained her nobility, her morality. She was ready to give up her dream, her mission, in order to protect Yehuda's dignity. God decided Tamar was the suitable mother of our greatest kings and leaders. In failure, the wife of Potiphar lashes out, causing Yosef to suffer the indignity of imprisonment in order to preserve her own dignity. The shortcomings of her character are preserved in the Torah for all time. No one seeks failure. No one likes it. But everyone experiences it. When it happens, remember Tamar and the wife of Potiphar and consciously choose what your reaction to failure will say about your character. Tremendously important lesson from the difference of the outcomes between Tamar and the wife of Potiphar. Now this is true because, as I said, failure is a test of character, but also because the effects of failure can be very long-lasting. So here is a dramatic demonstration of this principle. There is a spectacular failure near the beginning of our Parsha, the jealousy and enmity between Yosef and his brothers. And that leads the brothers to initially plan, God forbid, to kill Yosef, their brother. Eventually, they decide to sell him into slavery, which in their mind has the same result that they figure they will never see him again. It's hard to imagine brothers taking such drastic, violent action against each other. 
and think for a moment about the pain it causes their father Yaakov when they tell him their prepared lie that Yosef, his son, his favorite son, had been killed, God forbid, by a wild animal. The Torah tells us, Vayikra Yaakov Simlosov, Yaakov tore his garments in mourning and he placed sackcloth on himself. Vayisabel al yamim rabim and he mourned for his son many, many days. And his sons and his daughters tried to comfort him. He refused to be comforted. He said, I will go to my grave as a mourner. And he cried for his son. How could the brothers do this to their father? And what they did to their brother Yosef, causing him years of slavery, imprisonment, humiliation, loneliness, bereft of his family, bereft of his home. Finally, as we will read in the portions to come, years later, it gets worked out. Baruch Hashem, thank God. It turns out in the end, Yosef is second in command in Mitzrayim in Egypt. He is the one that will oversee the collection of food to store up for the years of famine so that everyone will be saved from the famine. Eventually, the brothers are reconciled. Eventually, Yaakov is reunited with Yosef. It ends okay. No, it does not end okay. It festers for centuries. And every Yom Kippur, we recall how it finally exploded with catastrophic consequences. In the afternoon of Yom Kippur every year, as part of the Musa prayer, we say a section of prayers that starts with the words, Ela Ezkara, these I remember. And that is a retelling of the torture and martyrdom of 10 of the greatest rabbis in all of our history, among them Rabbi Akiva, that happened about 1,800 years ago at the hands of the Romans. Now, when we read these prayers, when we revisit this painful history, one of the great difficulties is the unanswerable question of the suffering of the righteous. Can people be punished for the actions of others? It's very troubling and it's very painful. The prayer begins by quoting the rationale of the Roman governor for this reign of terror against these innocent, pious rabbis. Now, this telling is not meant to be a literal historical account, but it's rather to convey a lesson that our rabbis want us to learn from these events. So the Roman governor says to these rabbis that the reason that he is imposing this punishment is as a punishment 
for Yosef being sold at the hands of his brothers into slavery, which had happened about 1,600 years earlier. Our story, our Parsha. Now, it seems that nobody ever needs a good reason to persecute Jews. But for the Roman governor to give this specific reason is quite strange. Because the story continues, as I mentioned to you earlier, that Yosef, after being sold by his brothers as a slave, taken to Egypt, he rises in stature, as I mentioned. He's there in order to save everyone from the famine. He reveals himself ultimately to his brothers. They are reconciled. At first, they're frightened because they did this terrible thing to Yosef. And they're afraid that now that Yosef is the second in command of the most powerful country in the world, that he may take his vengeance. Their lives are in his hands. They ask him for forgiveness. But Yosef is gracious to them. We will learn in the Parsha in a couple of weeks. Yosef says to them, don't be upset. It was all part of God's plan that I should be in this position to be able to provide food for you and for our family. Don't worry. I will take care of you. I will take care of your children. It's okay. It would seem that that's the end of the story. It's okay. But it's not the end of the story. Because Yosef never says the words, I forgive you. The hurt was never resolved. And that hurt was available to be used as a pretext 1,600 years later by this Roman governor for terrible suffering among the Jewish people. Let me tell you this story. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, a blessed memory, was one of the greatest Torah scholars of the previous generation. So he was once in his living room with two men. The two men had had a dispute. They had turned to Rav Moshe to adjudicate the dispute. And Rav Moshe had decided the case. Now, Rav Moshe turned to one of the men and said, Reuven, I'm making up his name, Reuven, I want you to ask Shimon for forgiveness for what you did to him. And Reuven says to Shimon, I'm sorry for what I did. Please forgive me. Shimon says, it's fine. It's not a problem. Rav Moshe turns to Shimon and says, no, tell him you forgive him. Shimon says, I'm not angry. The case is decided. Everything's fine. Rav Moshe looks Shimon in the eyes and he said to him, Shimon, tell him explicitly that you forgive him. Shimon says, Reuven, I forgive you. And they shake hands and they leave. 
a student was present while this was going on. And when the men left, the student asked Ramosha, please tell me, why did you insist like that? Wasn't it enough that the argument was over? And Ramosha said, the reason I spoke to Shimon like that is because to be forgiven, you have to ask for forgiveness. And you have to mean it. And in order to grant forgiveness, you have to say, I forgive you. And you have to mean it with a full heart. And if that does not happen, just saying, it's okay, it's over, let's put it behind us, that doesn't erase the hurt. It's still there to fester and to grow, and it only gets worse. Every one of us experiences failure. How we respond is much more important than how we respond to success. We have to try to respond to failure by remembering what our response says about our character, like Tamar and not like the wife of Potiphar. And if it is possible, we must try to completely fix what is broken because any part that remains only gets worse. If someone hurt you and then they apologize sincerely, accept it with a whole heart, explicitly, without any reservations. Do it for their sake. Do it for your sake. And do it for the sake of our future. Recently, I watched on television, on Netflix, the third season of a series called The Crown. Perhaps you watched it. I enjoyed it very much. It's very entertaining. It's interesting, the personal lives of the monarchs of England. It's mostly about Queen Elizabeth. Living with a monarch is kind of unusual in our day. And I understand that it's a little bit complicated in Quebec, the idea of a monarch, especially a British monarch. There's also a different perspective for an American like myself. We had some things to say about the monarchy at a certain point. But it's interesting. I think that it does give a different perspective on relating to God as a monarch because we refer to God over and over as a Hamelech, our king, our sovereign, our monarch, Melech Olam, king of the universe. What can we learn from human monarchs that might inform or hopefully improve our relationship to our heavenly king, our heavenly monarch? So let me tell you this story. I once saw Queen Elizabeth. 
Many years ago, our family took a trip to England, and our trip coincided with the opening of Parliament. And there was a parade where the Queen traveled from Buckingham Palace to Westminster. My family remembers this day very well because I inadvertently exposed the film in my camera. So we do not have a photo of the Queen and they enjoy reminding me that we do not have those photos. But I also remember something else that happened that day. So there's a parade in London from Buckingham Palace to Westminster and there's a big crowd. We got there very early. So along the route of this parade, there's a big crowd on both sides of the street and the street itself is lined with soldiers standing at attention. So we got there early in order to get a good spot, in order to get a good photo of Queen Elizabeth, which I did get, but which I cannot show you. And just before it was about to start, the soldiers were getting into position at attention, roughly, I would say, about four feet apart from each other, lining the street the entire distance of the route. And just before it was about to begin, an officer came by and he was measuring exactly the distance between one soldier and the next in order to make sure that the distance was exactly equal between each soldier. And the soldiers were standing at attention and as he measured, each one, I can see it in my mind's eye, would kind of standing at attention, hop, little short steps to get into place either to the left or to the right so that the spacing was exact. And I was very impressed in honor of the queen. They want an exact, precise uh, 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 lineup of, of soldiers. I, I was very impressed with that. But here's the detail that made the deepest impression on me. This officer that came by had a tool and it was looked like a, an oversized compass, the drawing tool. It was two long poles joined with a hinge and the ends of the poles spread out to the exact distance that was supposed to be the space between one soldier and another. And so this officer carried this tool measuring along the route to make sure that the soldiers were in their exact position. But what I remember is how beautiful this tool was. It was beautiful, elegant, dark, polished wood poles with gleaming brass hinge. And that's my image of what it means to serve a monarch. And for us, what it means to serve God. 
What it means is that every detail should be beautiful. No effort is too much. Nothing is insignificant if it's done in honor of the monarch. And that is a message that comes from our observance of Hanukkah. Let me ask this question. How many lights in total will be lit in your home for Hanukkah over the eight days of Hanukkah? Well, it's not so clear. According to Jewish law, the actual requirement is one light per household on each of the eight nights. So regardless of how many people are in your home, that's a total of eight lights. Well, so you also need a shamash. So that's a total of 16 lights for the entire holiday. That's the actual requirement. That's the din, the law. Then there's a level of mahadrin, those who are more careful, who go beyond the minimum. And that is that if there's more than one person in the household, there is a light lit for each person in the household, one light. So let's say there are two people in the household. That means each night there are two lights. Two times eight is 16, plus another eight for the shamash, 24 lights. Then there's a third level. It's called Mahadrin Minamahadrin, the highest of the high, the maximum observance. The maximum observance is each night an additional light is lit. On the first night, one light. Tonight was one light. Tomorrow night, two lights. The next night, three nights, etc. Until the last night, eight lights. And that is true for each person in the family. So if you have, let's say, two menorahs, that's a total of uh, 44 times 2 is 88. That's 88. 16 to 24 to 88. But what's interesting is, in general, in Jewish law, we have a din, we have a law, we have the requirement. Then some people are more strict than is required by the law, okay? And that's why in any area of Jewish law, there is a range of how to observe certain commandments. And that makes sense because some Jews will choose the minimum, some Jews will choose the maximum. Different Jews will choose what to pay more attention to, what to pay less attention to. That's, that's understandable. What's unique about Hanukkah and let's remember, the word Hanukkah means dedication, but it also means chinuch, education. What's unique about Hanukkah is that the general practice that almost everybody follows is mahadrin min hamahadrin, the maximum level. It's normal for in every home for each person in the home to light a menorah and each night to add an additional light leading up to eight lights on the last night. 
and that is in gratitude for what our Melech, our monarch, what God did for us, the miracles of Hanukkah. We respond with the highest, best effort. The Chinuch part of Hanukkah, the educational aspect of Hanukkah, is to inspire us to adopt this maximum attitude towards mitzvos throughout the year. So, today there was great news. Yesterday was announced in Canada the imminent arrival, the approval and imminent arrival of a COVID vaccine. The vaccines have arrived in Israel, hopefully in the United States. They will come soon. Britain has already started to give people the vaccine. But that comes amidst the worsening of the health situation here and around the world. And so while there is now concrete optimism for the eventual return to normal, I realize many of us are disappointed in how we are celebrating Hanukkah this year. Perhaps we're alone. Perhaps we are distant from our family and friends. Yes, there is Zoom. But a big part of Hanukkah this year is missing. Hopefully we will reclaim it next year. But for now, I'd like to suggest that this is the time to focus on what we do have. The spiritual gift Hanukkah holds for us, especially when it's not overshadowed by the crowds and the parties and the gatherings, this is the year to focus on the other part of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is meant to be celebrated in our own home. In the words of the Talmud, the obligation of lighting the menorah on Hanukkah is ner ish ubeso. A person should light the light in their home. And that's difficult to understand why Hanukkah is a home-based holiday. Because after all, the miracle that it celebrates, the lighting of the menorah, there was only enough oil for one day, but it lasted for eight days. And we rededicated the lighting of the menorah and the institution of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, after it had been used by idolatry for idolatry. After all, the miracle, the origin of Hanukkah, was in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The miracle of the oil occurred in the temple. Given the fact that we refer to our synagogues today as Mikdash Ma'at, the miniature version of the temple, wouldn't it be more appropriate to observe Hanukkah primarily in shul, in our synagogues? 
Like, for example, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we primarily observe them in Shul. Yes, there are Hanukkah observances in Shul. Yes, we say Hallel, the, the, the prayers of praise and thanksgiving. We say those prayers in Shul every day of Hanukkah, but those could be said at home as well. Yes, it's true that we light the menorah every day in Shul during the Minyan morning and evening, but that is a relatively recent custom. It's not part of the basic requirement of lighting the menorah. That requirement of lighting the menorah is a requirement to light at home. Ner ish ubeso. Why is Hanukkah a home-based holiday? So let me share an answer given by Rabbi Riskin. A number of years ago, he went to Portugal to visit some small towns where there were crypto-Jews, Jews who had been forced to convert to Christianity during the times of the Catholic Inquisition, starting in 1492. And he tells the story that he came to a small town named Belmont in Portugal, and he was there for a shul, a davening service in a synagogue. And in this synagogue in Belmont, there were about 70 to 80 Jews for a regular weekday night prayer. And the people of this town explained that back in 1492, four families went underground when the Inquisition started and the shul was closed. For 500 years, their descendants married one another while keeping Judaism secretly until finally, recently, they were able to rebuild the synagogue. They rebuilt the shul, and now they have people coming every morning, every evening, every Shabbos, out in the open. At the entrance to this synagogue, over the doorway, there's an inscription. And the inscription reads, Here in this town, the chain of our tradition has not been severed. Amazing. As a result of the decrees of the Inquisition, these families had to publicly deny their Jewish religion. But they maintained Judaism in their home. For a period of 500 years, from 1492, when the shul was closed, until 2002, when it was reopened, the homes of this tiny town were the place where mitzvos were secretly observed. Tradition was transmitted from parent to child, generation to generation. Shabbos was observed secretly in hiding while Sunday was celebrated before the eyes of the neighbors so no one would know. 
Hebrew prayers were said in the darkness. In these homes, the Jewish soul was never lost. Hanukkah celebrates the eternal Jewish spirit in the face of assimilation and in the face of persecution. That's what Hanukkah is. Rabbi Riskin understood visiting Belmont. It is the Jewish home that preserves that spirit. That's where it happens. And that's the reason that the holiday that celebrates the eternal Jewish spirit must have its focus on our homes. But I ask you please to focus on this transition. Rabbi Yerachmiel Danziger, he lived about a hundred years ago and he wrote the following idea and it's expressed by others as well. The menorah originally, which we commemorate with the holiday of Hanukkah, was lit every day in the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Listen carefully to Rabbi Danziger's words. During the lighting of a Hanukkah candle, every Jew stands in place of the Kohen Gadol in the Holy Temple. And every Jew, even the simplest person, when they go to light a Hanukkah candle, they become the equivalent of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And their homes become like the Holy Temple, the Beit HaMikdash. When we light the menorah in our home, we are the Kohen Gadol, the holiest. And our home is the Beit HaMikdash. We transform our home into a holy temple. Hanukkah is not just about our survival. Yes, it is about that but it's also about how we transform our home into a temple and we transform ourselves into the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And we need to focus on the holiness of this moment when we transform ourselves and our homes. You see this, by the way, in a very interesting way in the words of the prayer that we add on Hanukkah to the Amidah and to the Benching, the Birkat Amazon, the Grace After Meals, the Al Hanisim prayer. Now that prayer is a brief retelling of the Hanukkah story. And we say the following words. They fought the battle, they came into the temple, they cleansed and purified the temple. V'hidliku neiros b'chatzros kachacha and they lit lights in your holy courtyard. Hold on a minute. Wait a minute. The menorah was not in the courtyard. The menorah was in the Heichal, the building. The, the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, has a large open courtyard, and there is a building, a Heichal, the building, 
the menorah was inside the building. It wasn't in the courtyard. What do the words of the prayer mean? And they lit the lights in your holy courtyard. They did not let light the menorah in the holy courtyard. It was inside the building. Rabbi Melech Biederman says, that line doesn't refer to then. It refers to now. Your home becomes Chatzros Kadshecha, God's holy courtyard. We transform our home into a place of holiness by lighting the menorah. And that's something that we can focus on. That is, in fact, the essence of Hanukkah. And I understand in a normal year, we're caught up in the parties and the donuts and the latkes and the presents. Yes, those are all wonderful things. And our family and friends, those are all fantastic, wonderful things. But let's at least this year focus on the essence of Hanukkah. The essence of Hanukkah is the holiness that we are bringing into our homes, into our lives. And the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, when he would light the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, he was actually reenacting an earlier event. God creating the world. Vayomer Elakim Yihi Or. And God said, let there be light. The Kohen Gadol emulates God in creating the world through removing darkness, through creating light. That's how God created the world. And the Kohen Gadol would emulate God by removing darkness within himself, removing darkness from the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, removing darkness from the world. And we continue to do the same thing in our home, emulating God in the act of creation by creating light, by lighting the menorah. We are emulating God. We are creating the world in our homes on Hanukkah. So I want to make a practical suggestion. When you light the menorah, tomorrow, Friday night, it's a little rushed to light the menorah before Shabbos. Okay, but after Shabbos or one of the nights in the coming week, you light the menorah, sing some songs, maybe you'll call or Zoom with your family and friends. Maybe there'll be some latkes, some dreidels, some donuts. Maybe there's some presents. That's all wonderful. But I would like you to add one more element. And what I'm going to suggest is not a new suggestion. In fact, it's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. It's not widely practiced, but it should be. Maybe in most years there's so much going on, it gets lost. But this year, especially if we're alone, you'll have the opportunity to do this. 
in the prayer that we say immediately after lighting the menorah, we say these words, Haneros halalu. These lights are holy. And we say these words, We do not have permission to use these lights for our own personal benefit. But rather, the only thing we're allowed to do is to look at them. Here's my suggestion. At some point, sit for a few minutes and look at the lights you have lit. Just sit quietly and look at the lights of the menorah. Sit quietly, relax, breathe evenly, slowly. Try to remove everything else from your mind. And here, if you're alone, it's actually easier. Just think about those words. Just look at the lights. Just look at the lights and think about God's words. By Elakim, God said, Yihi or, let there be light. Vayhi or, and there was light. As you're looking at those lights, see in your mind's eye the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, lighting the menorah. Sense the spirituality in those lights. God's presence in those lights. Sense God himself through the light of your menorah because you have brought God into your home. You have transformed your home into a Beit HaMikdash, into God's home. See yourself just for a moment. You, yourself, as the Kohen Gadol, bringing light to your life, bringing light to the Jewish people, bringing light to the world. Even if you're alone, when you light the menorah, your home is transformed and you are transformed. Let's try to focus on that, especially this year. My friends, I want to wish you a very happy Hanukkah, a wonderful Shabbos. I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.